Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to our spooktastic programming for the month of October. That's right, Horrifying Classics 2021. This year's theme, as you all know from months of foreshadowing, is contemporary horror. We played around with several different themes, as we do every year, and considered, for example, doing another author showcase a la Horrifying Classics 2019 with Stephen King, but landed on a theme that blends the strengths of the book album with contemporary literature and my favorite series that we do every year, Horrifying Classics, for a series that highlights new books throughout a broad array of horror subgenres. We will be delving into novels from the Lovecraftian horror subgenre, psychological horror, a short story collection, ghost or paranormal horror. On Patreon, we will review two Stephen King novels, one very old and one very new. So we have King's own mixture of horror there and this novel whose subgenre we will discuss presently. In total, the point of this year's theme, Contemporary Horror, is to introduce notable horror novels from the last few years, especially debut novels, which may one day become horrifying classics. Genre. Speaking of genre, subgenre, and whatever lies in between the two, the horror genre itself is technically a subgenre of speculative fiction, which is a subgenre, of course, of fiction. So we have quite the nesting doll situation here. Let's break it down in earnest. The broad umbrella of fiction colloquially means novels, novellas, and short stories of fiction, but it technically does cover all of fiction, including fictionalized works of other formats. Anything that is creative or imaginative, unreal, in other words. There's the colloquial saying that all fiction has an element of truth, and doesn't it have to, especially in the case of horror, to have an impact? I digress. So, within the colloquial definition of fiction, that is novels and the like, we have the subgenre called speculative fiction, of which horror is a part. This novel, I will just give it to you, fits within the southern gothic horror genre. Some might also put this novel in the realm of dark fantasy because there's some witchcraft, fantastical elements, and things going on but I think that Southern Gothic does the trick. So, what is Southern Gothic? I read from the Oxford RE link sourced at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for this episode. Quote, Southern Gothic is a mode or genre prevalent in literature from the early 19th century to this day. Characteristics of Southern Gothic include the presence of irrational, horrific, and transgressive thoughts, desires, and impulses, grotesque characters, dark humor, and an overall angst-ridden sense of alienation. 
While related to both the English and American Gothic tradition, Southern Gothic is uniquely rooted in the South's tensions and aberrations." Unquote. You'll remember from last year that Gothic in general, as our Gothic horrifying classics 2020 suggested, is all about death and macabre themes. There's another link to an article on Masterclass that discusses the horror genre in general terms, and one element that I found notable from that article was that the horror genre should, quote, elicit a sense of dread in the reader, unquote. I hadn't thought about dread as being an appropriate word to describe all of horror before I read that sentence, but it certainly fits, doesn't it? Even the horrifying classics books that are more standard horror novels, like our horrifying classics week four read, all elicit, quote, that sense of something uncanny that is about to happen, i.e. they, quote, elicit dread. In terms of this novel, the reason why it fits into gothic horror is so much because of the setting and atmosphere that Priest is able to create. It is, of course, set in the American South. There's all of the typical characteristics you would expect of the setting in that realm. So there's the marshlands, and it's hot, and there's kind of this stickiness that pervades the landscape. It's alien, so there are elements and times where characters question if they're even on Earth or they're even on a stretch of landscape that they would be able to identify normally something totally other, a different experience. In the first scene with Titus and Melanie, our main characters, who we'll discuss at more length in a minute, in the first scene with them, they are going on this road trip essentially on their honeymoon and they come across this bridge and there's this moment of irrationality where they suddenly decide, let's go across the bridge. And while Titus is driving across the bridge, we get the sense that he's being wholly taken up into something that he's never experienced before, something not of this world. And there is that sort of irrationality that comes into play and the overtaking of emotions that our definition here identifies, that definitely plays a role in it. Uh, another main character in the novel, Cameron, who's a young boy, almost old enough to leave the town where he grew up in, he also, characteristically, has this sense of emotion overtaking and overriding him and making the decisions for him. There's also the creature under the bridge, that's the more fantastical element of this novel, and the creature under the bridge supposedly died, right? It supposedly has been killed, and yet it still kills itself. So there's elements of almost double fantasy here, double, double mythology, when we have the creature that is most certainly dead, and yet this ghost or this phantom of the creature still is active and still is raining its terror onto the surrounding area of this town. And finally, there's the major theme here of isolation, which definitely 
parallels with alienation. And isolation in the sense that not only the landscape gives you that sense of, again, alienation and bareness and desolation, but there's also a sense that no one else, if you left this place, no one else would understand what it would be like. And I think that sense, that psychological sense, that psychological factor of isolation is so powerful in this particular book, especially since there are elements, which again, we'll talk about later, which make it maybe an easier read than some of the other horrifying classics novels, for example, that we'll go over. But the themes here are so complex and I think they really tie in not only the narrative and the story itself, but the entire prose format together. About the author. Sherry Priest was born in Florida and in her adult life has ping-ponged between Tennessee and Seattle where she now lives. She's quite prolific despite her young age with, and I'm quoting from her website linked down below, quote, 23 full-length projects published, unquote. She published a book called Bone Shaker in 2009, which received nominations for the Nebula and Hugo Awards and won a PNBA and a Locus Science Fiction Award. Again, according to Priest's website, she has, quote, a husband, two dogs, and a very large cat they like to call the house yeti, unquote. The last bit of which I find hilarious and so fitting for a large house cat. The back of this book, I got the Macmillan Press edition of this book, also mentions that Priest is, quote, one of the most popular authors in the steampunk urban fantasy community, unquote, which I found to be also quite fitting to this text in particular because it's so atmospheric and has such a distinctive style, and both of those communities really rely on stylistic features. Plot summary. So, of course, we have the famous one minute, that is never one minute, plot summary. First off, there's the book jacket plot, so to speak, which is essentially that there's this couple who's on their honeymoon, they decide to go camping and kayaking in the swamp. They make their way down, and they start going down this bridge and they do not make it back, essentially. Neither of them do in the end, but Melanie in particular, the wife of the couple, disappears, and the husband Titus wakes up in the middle of the road, away from his car, and without his wife. There's this element of the creature, of course, that lives under the bridge and sort of creates the bridge as a mirage, as something to lead people down, as a maze, as a trap. There's also, however, the town itself and people in the town itself who contribute to the plot quite significantly, and that's aside from the book jacket. So we have this young boy, which I mentioned earlier, called Cameron, and he is the typical teenager, I'm going to leave here soon kind of person. And he 
is grown up in some senses and that he is all right with stretches of being alone in isolation he thinks some very mature thoughts throughout the book um they're maybe sparse but <laughs> they do occur and yet he again is driven by this like childish sense of emotion and he has a crush on this waitress at the only bar in town her name is jess and her significant other is dave and dave is the owner of the bar so his behavior around those two, not the most mature for sure. Cameron has been raised by what become known, or who become known as the ladies, uh, Daisy and Claire, these two old women. And they're essentially witches in the most broad stretch of the word. They have this innate connection to magic and to charms and to little secrets about herbs and about seeing things that are yet unseen and things like this and they find Cameron one day essentially on the doorstep and take him in and raise him <laughs> and throughout the town it's to me it's a charming town but I understand the sense of isolation and desperation that Priest is building into the town despite its charm. And despite the charm, I think of the characters in the town who really make it. This is a dying town. Really, there are only, you know, a couple dozen people living there, and the next town over is the one that a lot of people are fleeing to, essentially. The business is not going well in this town. There's people who like to backpack and they pass through along the way. So there's that sense of this is ending some way or another very soon. Getting back to the plot, after Titus wakes up in the middle of the highway, essentially, <laughs> he of course, starts looking for Melanie, finds his car, all of that, and then calls the police, as one would do. The police show up, and they're from this town that I've been discussing called Staywater, and they don't do anything, and they don't talk about the bridge, and they say there's only six bridges on this highway, not seven, and Titus gets the sense that there's something else going on, and that there's maybe more of the truth that they aren't saying. He goes back to Staywater because he's now become a prime suspect in the murder, quote-unquote, of his wife, and he stays in the only inn available. There, of course, are some interactions between him and people at the bar. There's <laughs> ghosts around this town, which I love. I love that little fantastical, psychological almost element of this book, that there is a ghost named Carl in the bar. That was one of my favorite parts. And they all interact. They share the story of this missing woman. And the townspeople, of course, know that this is just a sign that people are going to start disappearing again, that there's this sort of window every so often, every 17 years, I believe, that opens 
or I'm not sure how many years, but there's a window every few years that opens. And there is that sense that something is going to start happening again to cause the people missing. We learn from looking in on Daisy and Claire that they figured out essentially the history of this thing and they realized that it goes all the way back to the native peoples who never really would settle down because of this creature and they would chalk it up to floods as many people would but they would say in the newspapers for example that there were disastrous floods and yet there were no recorded floods that year and so Daisy and Claire go out and decide we're going to kill this creature and this is of course much earlier in the instantiation of the floods when they were so young and capable of doing such a thing they go and they kill the creature they dismember it in fact and hide pieces of it around the swamp and then the next cycle comes around and people go missing again although not in the numbers that they had gone missing before so before there were hundreds of people who would die and go missing and in this time in this cycle after they've killed the beast there are only a couple people a handful here and there and yet there's a sense of we know exactly where these people are going why and how and what's going on so they go back and they check the swamp and the pieces of the thing are still there in decay and there's something very mysterious going on and the town doesn't know a lot of this context or they don't believe it is another sense but there is a sense that something bad something off is happening around this town and maybe also contributing to the death of the town so nearing the end of the book essentially titus gets fed up with staying in the town with having nothing really nothing being productively or actively done regarding his missing wife he enlists dave who was in the throes of the creature at one point during the last cycle and gets saved by jess we learn I'll talk about this a bit later, but we'll learn that Jess sacrificed her cousin to save Dave from the monster. And they go into the swamp, they find the seventh bridge, and they start tracking down the monster to find Melanie. And Cameron, who sees Jess, who's looking for Dave, goes after Jess, quote-unquote, and he also starts trying to go after the monster. Daisy and Claire make themselves into ghosts and go also after them because they realize what a naive mistake Cameron has made. And it all ends, it, it really ends in a bloodbath, I won't lie to you, uh, that is the great spoiler of this novel. <laughs> it really ends with Cameron alive and Jess never going into the swamp 
so she is obviously alive. And Cameron, instead of leaving the town as he's been so almost so primed to do his whole life, decides to run the bar with Jess and decides to get over somewhat his crush after he learns what Jess has done. So they confront essentially the monster. There's this, it's the ghost of the monster really is what it is. And supposedly put an end to it again, although they lose many, many people in the process. Pacing. Pacing is a feature of literature, which I am more and more interested in the more I read. Recently, I've often found myself in a pattern of reading thick books like Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky at the same pace as thin 200 pages like Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri, and I think part of that is due to pacing. If we looked at pacing as a graph, it would have several different axes. In the second masterclass link down below, their description of pacing gives us two important axes, which I believe will be sufficient for this episode, and those are scene length and density. Let's read from the page. Quote, pacing refers to how fast or slow the story is moving for the reader. This is determined by the length of a scene and the speed at which you, the writer, distribute information, unquote. The page goes on to say that descriptions slow down pacing while dialogue speeds it up. Even with this example, we can parse out that a descriptive sentence is likely going to be longer than a sentence of dialogue. For me, what I find fascinating is that spoken speech is much faster than written speech or read speech, which means to me that there's more information communicated in less time, or at least the same amount of communicate or information communicated in less time, right? Attributing technically a higher density of information to dialogue than to description. But most people would argue that the volume of text that descriptions often have equals a higher density, as it is more taxing to read. That, dear reader, listener, is a question for you to answer in the comments for this episode at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes. A great example of pacing, if you are unfamiliar and want to learn more, is the All the Pretty Horses series by Cormac McCarthy. The first book is essentially all dialogue. The second book in the series is essentially all description. And the third book, All the Pretty Horses, is a good mix of the two. That is what I've heard. I've only read the third book, which indeed is a good mixture of the two. So if you want to learn more about pacing, I suggest checking out those novels and how they're paced to get a better idea. Pacing in terms of this book was very interesting for me to look at in my post-read analysis. This was a quick read for me, I'll admit that. It was easy to read, it was very predictable, there were a lot of catchisms in the text, so you sort of had a sense for what was going to be said next and the kind of characterizations that Priest was going to make next. 
It was similar, actually, to the Jade the Libra book club reads that we did a few months ago. I have that episode linked in the description if you're interested. They're enjoyable reads, those books were, but they weren't the most intellectually stimulating. In terms of the pacing of the book more generally, the pacing starts very slow, and I think that really contributes to setting the scene, so to speak, creating and crafting this mood that we so rely on for the text to be interesting. And then the pacing gets very, very fast, and there's a lot of breathlessness in the last chapters of the book, I would say maybe the last third of the book. And I quite liked that. I thought that that was an effective device to use as this narrative started to get more and more intense and more and more pressured. And there were a lot more values and there were a lot more lives essentially at stake in the latter parts of the novel than we realized there were in the beginning parts. So I'm going to read two excerpts from this book first on page one of the novel, and then on pages 214 and 215, so that we can get a good sense of how the pacing is. I might add a third excerpt as well, we'll see. So page one of the novel, Staywater, Georgia, chapter one, quote, what nobody ever tells you about gardening is how many things you have to kill if you want to do it right. Daisy Spratford jammed her stade into the earth, slicing a worm in two. She used the small shovel to toss one half toward the bird feeder and the other toward the water fountain, full of murky green water and the fish that somehow survived there in the overgrown backyard of a house called Hazelhurst. No one says how many bugs, how many beetles, how many naked pink things that might be voles or might be mice. I don't know the difference when they're little like that. They all look the same until they get some hair. It don't matter anyway, said her cousin Claire. She didn't look up from her knitting. She didn't ta change the tempo of her foot, which leaned back and forth from heel to toe and back again, rocking her chair in time to the clicking of her needles." Unquote. So that's the first page of the novel roughly. We went on to the second page in the last quote there. And that's the sense of the pacing of this novel, what that's like. Very slow, right? We have this kind of domestic scene, and there's this kind of pausing of all time in this conversation. We don't get a lot of markers of time. We don't really know the time of day. It's just two ladies gardening, <laughs> or one lady gardening and one lady knitting until we get an introduction to what, what else is happening in the scene. But I love that in, in this, in that there's this like timelessness and there's a house that has a name, of course, that's very odd, very old. And there's just this, again, sense of weightlessness, timelessness here. All right, moving on to page 214. This is about two thirds through the novel. And this is when Cameron is making the decision to go himself to the swamp to quote-unquote save Jess, who we know by now has not actually made it to the swamp. If you hear the geese, 
excuse the geese. Quote, but upstairs, Cameron was standing at his bedroom window. He'd heard the last bit of the argument, bits and pieces of swears and threats and challenges. When it was over, he'd watched Jess leave, stomping back to the side of the road that led back to town. His pulse was throbbing high and hard in his temples, and his throat was burning like it was about to bring up something from his stomach that he couldn't look away. Not until she was gone past the old gate that never closed and the fence that was lying on the ground. Then she was lost to the trees and the road and the things beyond it, unquote. I'm going to leave with those two passages for now, but you can get a sense for how things are starting to come to a head as Cameron is making these decisions, very <laughs> undeliberative decisions, mind you about going to the swamp, about putting an end to this, about saving Jess and being sort of the knight in shining armor in this situation. And from there, we get sort of the racing thoughts of a teenage boy, right? And that space is so hectic and the pacing is so fast. It's very stream of consciousness, very dialogue-like, very casual and formal. There's not much that he's noticing descriptive-wise around at these moments, although I do love that last line about how Jess is disappearing, that's certainly not Cameron, that's the narrator <laughs> describing this beautiful scene of her disappearing slowly and the trees and the road and everything overtaking her. I love that description, but that does not come from Cameron. We get this sense of moment-to-momentness that I think teenagers are so well-equipped for and that maybe as adults we forget about sometimes. So all in all, the pacing here I think was artfully done. It made the book that much more interesting and the divisive pacing was again used to such a helpful extent to propelling the mood forward, the atmospheric nature of this novel forward through the novel. What I liked, scares. So here is the part of the horrifying classics contemporary horror 2021 episodes where I will rate the book based on my metric called scares and I will also talk about what I liked about the book. I'm going to start with what I liked about the book maybe because of my scare rating. I won't sugarcoat this. So what I, I liked a lot of elements about this book, actually, especially since it's an easier read, I didn't get a lot in terms of the literature out of it. I think the, the different aspects that we looked at today, pacing, genre, those were super stimulating for me as I was going through and reading and thinking about these things. I didn't think that, for example, particularly character development worked well in a literary sense. So I even think of books like Javier Maria's A Heart So White that I've read recently, or uh, even in Jumbo Lahiri's book to a certain extent, Whereabouts. There's this depth of character that makes them so real and so believable. And this, you definitely stick with the idea that the characters are all fictionalized, but that's not necessarily a critique that lowers the quality of this book. Let's talk about it. 
So the first thing that I loved about this book was the bar. I love how there's this central setting that we get a sense for, you know, what the bar looks like. And there's that old <laughs> adage that we all have a different bar in our heads, right? So there's that joke, the starting of the joke, which says, you know, a man walks into a bar and we all have a different bar that we picture, although we don't think about the different the differences of the bars that we have in our minds. I love the fact that there's this sort of central location that is so much up to interpretation and I love how there's always people revolving in and out of this setting and the setting stays constant throughout the book and we have a sense that the setting has been constant this whole time and will continue to be constant after the book as Cameron goes to work in the bar. So that's what I love about the bar and I love that there's the ghost Carl in the bar and he gets a cigar and brandy every night. I just love the quirkiness and the home uh, the home kind of feelings of this bar and the central role that it plays almost as a character itself. Jess's character, Jess, we learn. So Jess is the waitress at the bar, she's the one that Cameron has a crush on, and she's Dave's girlfriend. She has lived in Staywater for a long time. Uh, there's a hint that she might have left and come back and she used to work at a coffee shop, which is no longer open in Staywater. So Jess, turns out, had had a crush, had had a crush on Dave for years. And Dave had only come in, he was a tourist, right? So he would only backpack in, you know, once every couple of months, very sporadically. And he would always stop in the coffee shop and he would always, you know, hang out with Jess and say hi and everything, but they were acquaintances, they weren't even friends at this point. And then Jess, I'm not sure how she comes across this scene, but Dave gets taken up to the second, to the seventh bridge and is in the throes of the monster and Jess makes a deal with the monster and says, I will bring you a trade for this man if you spare him. So the monster spares Dave Jess is the one that saves him, quote-unquote, and she takes her cousin to the monster, and the monster slaughters her cousin, and her aunt goes crazy, quote-unquote, with grief for her son. So I love that depth to character, and that's the kind of depth that I, depth that I wish that the other characters in this book had and the way that Jess's character evolves so slowly I think that is just so that was so masterfully done and how there's sort of hints of it within the book right and you catch on at varying speeds throughout the novel I loved that again I keep mentioning the atmospheric nature of this novel Priest just does such a great job with setting and mood. I think that is something that is so crucial to this novel in the Southern Gothic genre and something that really makes it work within this genre and as a horror novel in general. It's so stylistic, all of that. I love the heroines of this novel, which are Daisy and Claire, the ladies, the old ladies. Um, and, you know, they sort of come back as ghosts near the end of the novel and kill this thing a second time better than they did before. Um, and I really love that aspect of it. 
I think that was so quirky, and I think that it was so almost celebratory of these old wise ladies in this town and their role in the town in general. Alright, let's get to scares. A scare is a unit of measurement used in the book album's horrifying classics 2021 series that denotes how much dread the book instilled in Mackenzie, that's me, the podcast's host. Scares also may be added if Mackenzie thought the book was particularly well-written, as in the book was not scary, but the writing itself was full of dread. I am giving this book 2.5 scares out of 5 scares. I thought a lot about the rating for this novel. I didn't want to give it anything lower than that, but as I've read more and more books in our horrifying classics of Wa, I do think that this book could have had more complex elements in it and still have been effective. That being said, the reason why I think this book is valuable still, and the reason why I really like this book, is that it's approachable for people. And I will champion any book that is approachable, that will get people reading, that will get people interested in literature. And that's the main takeaway from this book that I want to give you all, is that even though I personally did not find it scary and not find it intellectually stimulating doesn't mean that the book does not have inherent value and doesn't mean that the book also serves a different purpose and a different audience, right? I don't think that I'm the target audience for this book, for sure. But I do think that for what the book is and what it is supposed to do, it just does such a great job at that. And it has all of these incredibly well done, masterfully done elements in it that I think are still super value valuable, despite the fact that it didn't instill dread in me. Thank you so much for listening to our first Horrifying Classics episode of 2021. I hope you enjoyed it. We have two Horrifying Classics bonus episodes on Patreon, so patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature if you're interested in those. We'll be reviewing Billy Summers and Apt Pupil by Stephen King, two novels that are a nod to our Horrifying Classics 2019 series. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next Friday. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.